Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Thursday the 11th of April 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue our reading of Chapter 3, The Revolutionary Strategy of the Centre. We are joined by Lexi of Swampside Chats, Sophie of Trans Trans Revolution and C. Derek Farn of Symptomatic Redness. It gets quite heated as some of the panel are outraged by my scab stories. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, you too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month. That works out at about $1 an episode. When we hit 50 patrons, I'll produce an extra Patreon-only podcast every month. The remaining few patrons who sign up from now until then will receive an exclusive handmade commie badge as a bonus. So if that's your bag, just click that there Patreon button. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Lexi, why don't you take this next paragraph? The center tendency drew two conclusions from this understanding against the left and against the right. The first was rejection of the mass strike strategy. On this issue, the center presented the anarcho-syndicalists and the left with a version of Morton's Fork. The first limb of the fork was that a true general strike would depend on the Workers' Party having majority support if it was to win. But if the Workers' Party already had majority support, what was the need for a general strike? The Workers' Party would start with its electoral majority as a mandate for socialism rather than with the strike. It was for this reason that the center in August Babel's resolution at the 1905 SPD Congress was able to demand the use of the mass strike weapon in defense of, or in the struggle for, universal suffrage. Okay, so they're making the point here is like, what's what's the point in having this fetishization of the strike as the as the way, you know, we should be going for our majority first and using it, our political mandate to try first and the strike should be a, like a secondary kind of a, an idea. He's laying out the strategy in the broadest terms of the center. So he's laying out a strategy that technically describes something that he would want, but also is vague enough to describe the historic center with all of its flaws and mistakes. So is that idea of an electoral majority as a mandate for socialism part of the center tendency's flaws and mistakes, or is it... Does he really think that you can, if you have a majority in parliament, for example, you can just enact your minimum program and just have a dictatorship of the proletariat right then and there? He he ultimately thinks that you need a continental majority to do that. And I would imagine that he thinks of the continental majority in terms of, yes, majorities within like most of the national parliaments, but not taking power in one country Mm -hmm. before that, which is, you know... That's not something I see argued very often because there are strategic reasons that that would seem untenable. But it does seem to follow from the sort of cumulative record of everything that you don't take power as a socialist government in one country. But then at least my next question, even with that conception of, okay, like say like the majority of the European countries have a a workers party is in power. I'm assuming you still need to smash the bourgeois state machinery. It's the question of what does it mean to implement the minimum program? For McNair, implementing the minimum program would dismantle the bourgeois state and in terms of its armed wing, at the very least, if nothing else. Why don't we describe what this minimum program is? Because a lot of people have no idea what it is. Sure. So Um, the minimum program is a set of reforms that have evolved over time um, that are seen as the necessary preconditions to start de- uh, developing towards socialism. Some of them are kind of immediate political issues. Some of them are like complete rewrites of the structure of legislation, the structure of legislate- legislative bodies, the abolition of large parts of the executive branch. You know, it, when people read a minimum program, they often are kind of shocked at how reformist some of the things are and then how incredibly radical other the things are lexi and i like literally tried to go through i don't know a history of like maybe we read like like, 40 different minimum programs but ranging from historical parties to sex licks i I, I, I like 
10 transitional programs. And uh, it was a mess, but I learned a ton from doing it. The thing is, the critique of the minimum program by the Trotskyist was that you never get beyond the minimum program. As soon as you start getting its its most basic reforms, you start having to get into a defensive posture. So that's something to keep in mind. But that that's the idea. And if if you did implement certain elements of the minimum program, such as the restructure of the entire legislation, the, the usually it bars upper houses, it limits executives, it like abolishes appointed generalships, <laughs> you know, like if you do that, you really have smashed a lot of the bourgeois state apparatus. I'm just inherently skeptical of being able to do that through a simple electoral majority. You know what I mean? Like, it does, mm. that doesn't seem tenable. I think what might be might be tenable is that you do have revolutions, like, say, like, I don't know, like, Great Britain and Spain, like, has a revolution, and then it kind of starts spreading to other countries, and then the few remaining countries that don't have that revolution you know, since they already have socialists in the majority in parliament, they're just like, well, like, we're going to become part of this international thing now. So fuck off, bourgeoisie. Like, I think that is reasonable. But I think without any, like, I have a hard, and I guess he's obviously a revolutionary. So like, I just, but that. this will lead to a civil war. I mean, you're going to be honest, the the crypto thing in this is like, yeah, once you start to do this, the reactionary factors will start acting extra governmentally, and you will have a civil war. The thing okay. is, you want to be in the position of yeah of having authority and so and at least social authority when it's declared, not in the position of looking like you're a punches. That's the difference, right? Okay. Yeah, and, and and so like I guess the challenge would be from like the like Rosa Luxemburg school of like autonomy and mass strikeism that I think is in the way that you were saying, Derek, along the lines of defending democracy from the bourgeoisie in a civil war, that would be where the true like autonomous self-emancipation of the proletariat is coming from. Because I, I, I do agree kind of resonating with Grant's kind of anti-politics comments on McNair, that there's a tendency to substitute these political acts for the acts of the class. And that, not that I'm opposed to some kind of Republican expression of the interests of the class, and not that know, Grant would be either, actually. Yeah, yeah, and ultimately, I, I do think, structurally speaking, those are primary. Those are the things that really alter the social order forever. But it, it does seem that those actions of the class are not as dispensable as McNair sometimes sounds like they are, because in agreeing with Kautsky. Well, the other yeah. elephant in the room is this has never actually happened. One thing to say is like that in reality, if you think about, let's say, like Austria, all of a sudden now had uh, a radical left party, very, very unlikely they would exist in Europe, say. We're talking specifically about the developed world. Most of this is about the developed world. So we're talking about like like a capitalist country sitting in Europe. Can it get like a radical communist party existing on its own? Like this book is written about like because internationalism is also at the center of a strategy, it should be like that across a vast weight of a of a developed continent, there would be lots of different parliaments would be getting close to this position. So you're not taking it on your own. Usually it would if you had a big one get to the like say if you had a Germany or a France get to the position where they're able to get 60% of the to the vote and they went in to do this, the the enthusiasm of the left of it doing that would would probably lead to similar stuff happening all over the place, whether officially through the parliament or not. Just like the Tunisian revolution sparked a wave of revolutions in other countries that had similar types of political structures, that it would light a fire. And I think that, you know, we kind of have to think about it, you know, systemically in that order. Lexi, do you want to go with the second limb? Yeah, let's make it happen. The second limb of the fork was that the strategy of the working class coming to power through a strike wave presupposed that the Workers' Party had not won a majority. In these circumstances, for the Workers' Party to reach for power would be a matter of conning the working class into taking power. However formally majoritarian the party might be, the act of turning a strike wave into a struggle for power would inevitably be the act of an enlightened minority steering the benighted masses.
That's a hot take, Mac. That's a hot take. You know, that's a critique of Rosa Luxemburg right there. Indeed. You know, the German the German revolution failed. Why did it fail? There were five percent of the population. Next, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It's obvious. It's, it's just yeah. goddamn obvious. There there are some elements of Luxembourg's critique of social democracy and, and Leninist like uh partyism that I find very attractive and persuasive, but this point is difficult to argue against really yeah i agree i i like luxembourg a lot but uh this particular point i don't agree with her i think she fills in the gaps for other parts of kautskyism and in particular leninism that are kind of lacking you can talk about the dangers of some of this later because i know i'm I'm really sanguine and trying to give it its best face forward i do parts of this I, i i agree with but there's a lingering suspicion that there's a conflation of political class with sociological class in a way that makes some of this suspect. And we'll come back to that later. Um, let's move on. Derek, don't don't just drop a bomb like that. Explain yourself. Well, it's something I've thought about a lot because I'm not sure how it, how I think about it. Mass organization of the of the workers here. McNair seems to say that it's self emancipation. But he takes that emancipation as largely led by the institutions and the organizations the proletariat creates. But whether or not those things stay proletarian is not really like once they're once to organize is not really ever dealt with. And I I actually think that is a big blind spot. It doesn't undo his argument, but it's something you have to think about in implementation. And when we talk about this later, because the, the elephant in the room for me is nobody's ever done this, including McNair. Including McNair, I mean, you know, including all the people that there are like statues and portraits of that we've read multiple books by, you know, I mean, like at the height of the workers movement, at the height of workers power, this stuff didn't happen. And what I think is telling, though, is that this stuff didn't happen, but neither did like the official story of the Bolshevik party. That didn't didn't really happen either. You know what I mean? And I think to me, that's where Luxembourg kind of fills in some gaps and like looking at the need for both like a institutionalized you know vanguard but a vanguard in the sense of like the most advanced elements of the working class and its relationship to the spontaneity of the working class like it's that's kind of where the whole idea of base building falls apart as we've talked about before you can't force the working class to do this sort of shit otherwise you do end up looking like this enlightened minority uh steering the stupid masses you know, a better take on that is that you, for us leftoids who are, you know, thinking too much about this shit, we build these institutions, but we can't force the spontaneity, which is kind of the kernel of truth with the anti-politics as well. They go a little bit too far, get too wizard, wizard language about it, but. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you guys a question, my peeps. So far, what's the difference between this and the Maoist mass line? Explain the mass, Maoist mass line to me. Yes, you get please. everybody. You get everybody involved. You you have the institutions of of revolution. Listen to those people, and then and then you have those institutions help them organize and deliver what the masses want. The first thing that comes to mind, I guess, is like, was that really what happened? And no, in, uh, but that is know, their China. their justification. That no, it, it that is not what really what happened. But if you're arguing with a Maoist, particularly the ones that are not so high, you know, hopped up on on Z and Dean crack these days, they will tell you, yeah, that's why it didn't work. It's because we didn't do what we said we were going to do, right. which is the actual mass line. But, you know, they tried that and, you know, it worked well. And I don't know, they'll say it worked well in Cambodia, or maybe they'll <laughs> say it worked well in, um, in uh, Cambodia the first and second time, <laughs> you know, like, like they get really, they get really cagey on, on what they think counts and doesn't count. It worked well when we went out into the, you know, Latin American jungles and just randomly killed peasants. I don't know. I think there's a better there's a better way of looking at this. Like, let's say a more defensible form would be something like the Black Panthers. Right. Where yeah. they're influenced by a mass line strategy was just really, yeah, trying to figure out what the self-perceived interests of black people were, politically speaking. Yeah, like, and of the proletariat as a whole. I mean, they had these internal no, debates about, no, about no, reaching beyond true. the black community too. And yeah, those absolutely. debates were heated. Like right. whenever we, we talk about the Black Panthers, we talk about them as if they were a coherent thing. But like you should – like the Hampton versus Stokely Carmichael versus uh, what's-his-face who ended up a conservative anyway, um, the leader of the BLA, Cleaver. Like those guys like denounced each other viciously internally. 
look, the, the, the idea here is is obvious. We, we don't have to look to like how Maoists didn't actually do what they said they were going to do. If we're anything I've people, learned from studying from studying sociology is the obvious is usually wrong. Well, okay. So, let me just, let me use another let me use another word then. Loads of different political parties of all different stripes. They say they're going to act this way and they act a different way. And what we're what we're saying here is that like the party would have to, whatever this structure we're going to call it a party would have to be fundamentally democratic to its core. You can design parties to be to be structurally democratic, you know. But like, obviously, look at like the the Bolsheviks and how they operated. You know, it was a vanguard. You know, Mao's party. Do you think that it was really super democratic? Depends on what you're talking about in general. Now, yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, it's a, there's an obvious smell test on these things. Yeah. You know, and it, and if you don't have the right fucking design of a party, you know, you're going to end up precisely in the wrong in the wrong place by the but end of it. Here's yeah. well, one thing I would say, like about one thing mm -hmm. just before, because uh, just before I, I forget my point as well is like that one thing I say as well is like how come no one's ever tried it? Kind of blah 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 blah. We've had essentially one, maybe two cycles in history of proletarian revolutions. We had maybe you could say like it was it the eighteen seventies. And then the 1920s ones that that's what we had in Europe. You had two cycles, right? Neither of them have done it really well in the two cycles. You might you might say actually that the the Paris Commune actually did do it, but they got defeated. But the other the other waves they didn't do it. And what we're saying right. is like, you know, if we think about history in the long haul, there might be ten waves before the proletarians actually kind of go, Jesus, right. all these things we've done are stupid. And they get it right, right. once. They only have to get it right once. Like the capitalist yeah, class, the, the capitalist class only had to get it right once to defeat feudalism. And they, you know, the right strategy. No, I actually don't century. agree with that either. It took a lot <laughs> well, because they fell in one revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah they fell they, over the course yeah, of three hundred goddamn years. But Derek, the, they got it wrong initially. This is what I'm trying to say. They got it wrong, and it took quite a quite a number of them to get it right. And once they got it right. They got it right. And and it should be that's what we should expect. You know, and when we're trying to compare like stuff like Mao or the Bolsheviks or Cuba or who take your pick by why they don't work, none of them have kind of followed this kind of core line in reality. But like if we're talking about a mass line in the Black Panther Party, to me that's the best version of it, honestly. And if that is a litmus test, then really we shouldn't be that different from that. On it, in my opinion, Lexi knows what I'm getting at here. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to what do we mean by democracy? And that's Bingo. something that it's a question that the book asks without answering, but it asks it very forcefully. Like, what is this party democracy we speak of? What is this magic mechanism for transforming proletarian social interests into institutional design? That doesn't accidentally okay. make a new class, right? Well, I mean, you know, I think McNair yeah. is struggling with it, but th this is like my point about Maoist isn't that I really care. I don't think there's a good prior model either, nor do I think the revolution is doomed. What I really, really want people to ask themselves: We say democratic, we throw it around as if we have any idea what it actually means, and maybe we do. But I've never seen a party, even when people sincerely believed it, actually have a functional setup internal democracy and i read a shit ton of party constitutions and stuff now to try to figure this out this is a it was mcnair who inspired me to look at this and when i actually looked at even the constitution of the party mcnair is in i was <laughs> left kind of cold like yeah, in yeah. some ways bourgeois democracy has actually been more functional and, and more democratic even though it's not than <laughs> Than what we've ever been able to do. But look, Derek, who, 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 where does this? Where do parties like the CPGB come out of? Where do all these little left sects come out of? Whether they're anarchists or not, they like a lot of time are these people who want to be in charge of that group. Yeah, and that's I mean, it, the fundamental it, it, problem with most of the designs. Whether it's actual like the legal writing of the design or the intrinsic social operation of the party, is that they they are vehicles for. My ego over your ego. 
and it, it, when a party will come across come along and will will actually not do that here here's what here's what interests me and worries me if we think about this do we think that a workers party even if it self-conceived itself as a workers party in this environment now if it started to emerge would it understand itself to have began as socialist and i don't know that i think it would have there's hmm. too much baggage there that that's something i think a lot about like like i think maybe we could do this i think maybe we could even but like like i remember there was this this weird kind of nas bullish not really I, I shouldn't throw that that word's been overused lately tendency like in 2016 to see like Bannon workerism is like an attempt at a rightist form of this. But a lot of people are like, well, there's some kind of workers party. Like, I don't think it's going to look like. I have a hard time imagining, you know, as much as I love uh, ACO, I mean, AOC or whatever, that this, a workers party in the United States is going to look like the DSA because the DSA's demographic is around Greenpoint, the Bay, Portland, and around people who are highly college educated. And no one has ever shown me a stat to disagree with that so like what do you do yeah. with that but like the thing is like derek it's like if we come up with a really good party form right now okay and we tried it out it'll probably do nothing yeah right like Great. it has to it has to be when the conditions are correct that it will move but the problem with most parties and how they're structured and the people who are in power or started and want them to operate look at any of these little truck groups any anarchist kind of a thing look at any kind of bourgeois parties type of one they make a control they may actually win a socialist or communist revolution and what's the likelihood of what will happen it'll fall back just like the 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 revolutions that were won in the 20th century because unless they're able to unless that party is able to act not like one of these lines for a, a central committee they will fall apart and they will lose eventually it's just an inevitability they will lose their motor power or whatever all we can do now as leftoids sitting around a microphone in a book is is try to organize some kind of institution that you know when the next spontaneous thing happens it won't just fizzle out or be co-opted right but like you look at say people who have actually thought about this like say you know the guys who did Paricon, you know participatory right. economics right they actually sat down and they thought actually we need to actually sit down the problem is we don't have these exact designs correct and they put a lot of effort into designing their system right and maybe that system system or maybe it's a bad one but what's happened to that system designed 30 40 years ago it sat in a few books I think there's like yeah. a couple of little publishers that work with them because that's just the reality, whether it would be good or whether it would be bad, the state of the economy or the state of the working class at the moment, that it, it just won't take it. Okay. Now, maybe those forms or similar forms or good forms will be used at a point in the future. What, all we can hope to do, I don't even think we can hope to like try and even set up organizations that will even do anything with, say, the same institutional form. I think that's even... <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I think that's like probably like what's the point? I think what we can the best we can do at the, is to actually get people talking and thinking about these ideas. When the DSA falls apart, or when Bernie falls apart, yeah, or when Corbyn falls apart, all these smug people. Or for God forbid, any of them actually win. That's what Tom said. That's what yeah. I mean. They <laughs> fall apart. So, yeah. So when that happens, like Syriza. And like all these things, when it happens, all these people, like I, I saw some interview, who was the interview with? It was some guy who's involved anyway with Novara Media and that thing connected to Corbin. And oh, like, <laughs> yeah, it's or, not him. It's another guy. I can't remember. I do you know uh, he was interviewed on the Dead the, Pundit the Society. The Tisky Sour guy? Am I thinking of the right guy? Not him, no. Another guy. He was I don't on listen to either of those podcasts, so I don't know. I, I used yeah. to be a Novara diehard back when it was two people. And also when it was like autonomous, somehow ended up as social yeah. democrats. But anyway. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. They're totally gone. So like um when that stuff falls apart, there was one guy, he was on like the Dead Pundit Society and he was like slagging off like 
these Marxists, you know, and they're talking about the fall rate of profit. God knows if he's listening to my podcast. <laughs> podcast of all time. It's all I've talked about for about five years. But he, you know, he was like slagging it off and going, we're in the real world. We're trying to get stuff done. When that shit falls apart, what are yeah. people going to pick? What we want to be doing is getting this strategy stuff right. This current cycle of history, they're going to fall on their ass. Then it's going to come back, and in in ten or fifteen years, they'll go fucking hell. Varn was right, or Lexi was right. <laughs> Sophie, they had a fucking they they saw they did know what was going on. Why didn't we? You know, and yeah, People doing hollow blogs about our discussions as if we're talking about they, books from the nineteen twenties. Yes, <laughs> oh, there'll be holograms of us. We'll have somehow we'll have yeah. our voice holograms. I'll, I'll be karate chopping Derek, telling him to shut up. And, uh, <laughs> I'll be talking over Sophie. It'll be brilliant. It'll yeah. be great. Yeah, a podcaster's log, start date. Yeah. It's about getting trying to analyze it. You know what I mean? It's not about like, oh, you're wrong. Who gives a fuck? Yeah, I've been wrong with right. most of my life. But it's about trying to understand the thing and and get at least getting it out there. Because is it in, is this book, is these arguments, are people really talk about this in the left? Really, like the people, you know, the vast majority of people on the left, the people who think, oh, I like Corbyn or oh, Aaron Bastani, he's good. He, he did a, a, a sassy video about Venezuela. You know, they don't. They don't know this shit. Even the people who have read this book don't really talk about it. Like, yeah, really. This is, this is the thing. I Like, we have watched something emerge from this book that supposedly take this book and Hal Draper, who also McNair likes, as major inspirations. And it do all the things the book warns against so like that's just fresh in my mind right now and it, it that's the american example which is you know its own kind of special microcosm and it's super micro let's not get that wrong but also when when um the cbgb actually tried to do left unity efforts to try to start some of this oh my god did it go badly i have a fucking metaphor for us okay this book it has been implemented like a fad diet. Okay. The people who are in the oh, who are who are people who are always doing different diets and going, oh maybe this diet is good. Yeah, oh yeah, I lost three pounds in this diet. And then they put the weight fucking back on the next day. They don't apply oh, it. Uh, it's a fad. And so, it, you know, that's all that's all that this so is. It's a it's a keto and like next week we'll be back on um uh yeah, all carbs all the time. And it's yeah, like, <laughs> this is the actual diet for the, for no, today. That's, Next, that's not wrong. Oh diet. lord, it's no, it's it's too right. That, no. the, yeah, wow. that's depressing because you're right. Because the people that I've talked to about this have gone through many other phases since I've known them. Well, so, it, it also explains why in America the Marxist Center has like weird anti-revisionists and also weird like you know ultra cults. You know what I mean? Like. It, it, it's just something to do for them, you know? I guess I'm not quite as cynical as Thomas as far as, like, organizing. I don't think it's 100% pointless, but I do think, like, focusing locally and just, like, getting people who are interested in this stuff and trying to, like, have, the, have these discussions primarily and being a part of your community secondarily, I think, is kind of the key. And maybe that's just, you know, my old, old anarchist habits dying hard, I guess, but... I don't know. I'm old. The argument against the right was also an argument against minority action, but minority action of a different kind. The right argued that a workers' party, while still a minority, should be willing to enter a coalition in government with the middle-class parties in order to win reforms. The center argued against this policy. Uh, the, the center argued that this policy was illusory, primarily because the interests of the middle class and those of the proletariat were opposed. Behind this argument was the one made by Marx in 1850, that it would be a disaster for the Workers' Party to come to power on the backs of support of petty proprietors, since the Workers' Party would then be forced to represent the interests of an alien class. Oof. Ooh. Yeah. 1850, people. That burns. I mean, like, look, I know that trots throw around petite bourgeois as an ideological formation, like, way, way too much to everyone and their mom. Like, and anyone who looks at them funny is Petit Bourgeois. <laughs> but, like, there's a truth to that, particularly in the relationship to the Democrats. And honestly, in the relationship to Democrats, it's not even petty proprietors. It's just outright proprietors. Right. Like, like I almost would have a sympathy for, like, a Petit Bourgeois class in America. But there isn't – I mean, there isn't – they don't have a representative either. 
<laughs> right. And the long-term kind of Marxist read of that kind of middle class is that they can't form a stable political coalition. They can only buddy up with the big bourgeoisie or the proletariat, ultimately. Right. Right. And when Marx talks about this in, uh, in the Communist Manifesto, he talks about the petty bourgeois has an incentive to proletarianize. But you wouldn't you wouldn't come to power on a coalition of them. You would you would come to power and then invite them in because you would be it would be in their interest, usually. But I mean, honestly, in reality, their interests would probably split. But depending on where you are in the hierarchy of petty proprietors, you you might be all over the place. And then, to be honest with you, there's all these labor aristocratic, and I I don't mean this in the way that Maoists do. I mean people it's hard to scab on. Labor aristocratic factions in the United States that their interests are and they dominate the left. And look, look, I'm a member of that class. Like yeah. I'm a teacher. You can't scab on me. Like I'm not going to say I'm not a worker. There's a world of difference between me and a McDonald's worker. Could do is I could pick a scab and then throw it at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> a friend of mine he we were out drinking he opened his wallet to get his bank card and i noticed he had something weird in his wallet i said what's that and he said oh that's that's a scab and i was like what he goes, what oh, i i picked a scab today it was a really big one it was really good so i kept it and i was i was like what, what? what are you talking about and we were sitting there we were trying to chat up these girls and we were like I was like, uh, to embarrass him, I said, hey, Derek, why don't you show the girls what's in your wallet? And he was like, oh, yeah, look at this. So what you're saying is that the dude had a literal scab in his wallet, but I get, I bet you yes. he didn't have a union card. I hope I hope the scab didn't help him win any chicks. Oh. It sure as hell didn't. <laughs> There's a look of, like, sheer terror in their eyes. Oh, man, it right. was very, very funny. Right. As, as, as the appropriate proletarian response should be. All right. Uh, Revolting scabs. <laughs> Nobody likes scabs. Oh, All right, let's go on. <laughs> All right, let's read uh, this, this uh, quote. Who's, who yeah. said this quote? Let me go look mm. it up. I think it's Marx. Yeah. It's Marx, isn't it? It's Marx. So this is likely from his speech to, is this the first Congress, or is this like a Congress of the First International? I, I, I don't remember exactly the time frame here. There's a famous speech on the permanent revolution, essentially, in 1850 that a lot of this strategic stuff is derived from and it's the major sort of like post manifesto early marx political work i guess you could say so i'm guessing that's where it's from i'm going to read it out we are devoted to a party which most fortunately for it cannot yet come to power if the proletariat were to come to power the measures it would introduce would be petty bourgeois and not directly proletarian. Our party can come to power only when the conditions allow it to put its own view into practice. Louis Blanc, the French socialist who participated in a Republican coalition government in 1848, is the best instance of what happens when you come to power prematurely. Let's go yeah. for this next one. Let's have a read of this. This is Engels wrote to Turati in 1894. After common victory, we might perhaps be offered some seats in the new government, but always in a minority. Here lies the greatest danger. After the February Revolution in 1848, the French Socialistic Democrats were incautious enough to accept such positions. As a minority in the government, they involuntarily bore the responsibility for all the infamy and treachery which the majority, composed of pure Republicans, committed against the working class while at the same time their participation in the government completely paralyzed the revolutionary action of the working class they were supposed to represent. The most live example I can think of was the liberal Democrats that bore yeah. a lot of the, the, the punishment for the ridiculousness of the conservatives in the United uh, Kingdom. And the Greens in Mexico bear a lot of the corruption markers of the PRI for the same reason, because they're always in coalition with the, with the PRI. That, that happens over and over and over and over and over and over again. I, I think the Greens maybe. I mean, yeah, the Lib Dems are the ones that Americans might know, but the, the Greens in Mexico might be easier to understand because they're actually closer to a socialist party. Like in, in Ireland, you've had the Democratic left, you've had the, the Labour Party, you've had the Greens, you had the Democrats. 
you've had literally all the most of those parties have ended up being absolutely smashed to pieces by it. You know, the Lib Devs in England, it's so obvious. Who wants to take this patience one? Sophie, do you want to read this bit? The center strategic line was then a strategy of patience as opposed to the two forms of impatience, those of the right's coalition policy and the left's mass strike strategy. The strategy of patience had its grounds in the belief that the inner logic of capital would inevitably tend in the first place to increase the relative number and hence strength of the proletariat as a class. That, in the second, to increase social inequality and class antagonism. Kotsky makes the argument most clearly in the social revolution. In this situation, the workers' party slash movement could expect to build up its forces over the long term to a point at which it would eventually be able to take power with majority support. Initial thought when it comes to that. There's a, there's a tension between a strategy of patience and ecological crisis, right? Like, a, you know, it kind of feels like there's a ticking time bomb in the environment. And so there, that creates this problem to where, like, how long do we be patient? And then if because of that pressure, will the center strategy kind of capitulate to the right or to the left? And I think it'll most likely capitulate to the right. To respond to that directly would be, for me, like, essentially what this needs to be at base is a rejection of the kind of panicked short-term instrumental reason that you always seem to get in politics, no matter if there is global warming or nuclear war or the imminent revolution around the corner. There's always, there's always another reason to be panicked and obsessed with short-term outcomes. And I think the ultimate thing to say to that environmentalist impulse is that that's part of what got us here, is the refusal to not do this and to continue to panic in this very short-term way has has actually collaborated in with capitalism to destroy the environment. It hasn't actually gotten us out. Okay. And the fact yeah. that you know we only have you know 15, 20 years left doesn't mean that we capitulate to two-year electoral cycles as our exclusive horizons. Like it's interesting uh, when I read this patient strategy stuff, when I think about the policy of Irish Republicans in Northern Ireland, the Sinn Féin. I don't know if people know too much about them, but they've had incredible patience with their strategy since the, like, the mid-70s in their political strategy of having doing an electoral strategy alongside their, you know, their armed struggle. And then also with the Good Friday Agreement going towards essentially a demographic strategy they had a strategy also of never representing, never never sitting in Parliament in Westminster, never taking an oath to the Queen and never participating in politics of the UK. It seems like sometimes it, it kind of goes against them short term, but politically it's worked incredibly well for them. I'm always being amazed by and how well they stick to their line. It really shows that you need to utilize patience. They use it in such a way that they went from, you know, having no seats in Northern Ireland to having been the biggest party in Northern Ireland. You know, well, maybe joint biggest. But like, you've got to think 40, 50, 60 years, you know, and that's just the reality of politics, the reality of humans and how they change their minds and how young people come up and how they live in a different milieu. You know, I just think that as commies or whatever, it's just an obvious truth of political strategy. There are good reasons to think that our window for opportunity for fixing a big thing is more urgent than normal, even though there's always a reason, you know, to be, a you know, kind of hyper militant or whatever, that the, the environment does pose a significant challenge for keeping those short-termist tendencies at bay. Uh, the Green New Deal, for instance is very attractive to people all across Marxism that are just starved for answers for what to do about, you know, the apocalypse. This is something that it's, it's going to take some really difficult, nuanced patience to deal with for the reasons that I guess are drawn out in the next paragraph. The strategic line can be summed up as follows. Until we have won a majority, identifiable by our votes in the election results, 
the Workers' Party will remain in opposition and not in government. While in opposition, we will, of course, make every effort to win partial gains through strikes, single-issue campaigns, etc., including partial agreements and with other parties, not amounting to governmental coalitions and not involving workers' parties expressing confidence in these parties. As a side note, this is pretty much the united front strategy that Trotsky has used in the 30s, right? Or pretty close to it. You don't enter formal coalitions with bourgeois parties, even though you will strategically support them on single issue campaigns. You never say you have confidence in the party, only the issue. And that's opposed to the popular front strategy. What is interesting to me is a lot of people seem to devolve McNair back into a popular frontist. It's kind of amazing to think that uh, Bhaskar Sankara popularized this book among the American left. Yeah, oh my God. That he thinks yeah. the popular front is good, just time the social democrats just need to be in charge, as opposed to the Stalinists. Right. I mean, like, woo. Right, so and people you know, are either bad readers or really acting in bad faith. Or there's something about the strategy presented here that seems untenable or unrealistic to people that are trying to apply it to our world. And I think there is there's a problem here, but it's sort of the problem that Marx was always trying to address of the two dominant tendencies and the excluded middle of those dominant tendencies. Let, let, let's, have a, let's, let's have a go at this in the next paragraph. When we have a majority, we'll form a government and implement the whole minimum program. If necessary, the possession of a majority will give us legitimacy to coerce the capitalist or pro-capitalist and petty bourgeoisie minority. Implementing the whole minimum program will prevent the state in the future serving as an instrument of the capitalist class and allow the class struggle to progress on terrain more favourable to the working class. So one thing we didn't really mention in the, when we're discussing the minimum programme is one about how you would disband and totally radically change the nature of the army. So the army mm -hmm. would be based on local units and the people would have their own weapons and it's not like some crazy top-down structure whereby the writers can get control of it and just mill everybody. To me, it seems like he's saying that in a parliament, if you have enough of a majority where you can form a government without a coalition with any bourgeois or petite bourgeois party, you do that, then you enact your whole minimum program. Isn't my reading that correctly or elaborating that correctly? Yeah. And then again, this is stated in a general way so that it can apply to the historic Kautskian center and to the refined version that McNair will posit later. An increasing proportion of the total population of imperialist countries become wholly or partly dependent on the spoils of empire. The version of the strategy of patience adopted by the SPD leadership depends on workers' party actually achieving an electoral majority. But the economic and social effects of imperialism in the imperialist countries mean that this is unlikely in any single imperialist country outside of conditions of acute political crisis. What does he mean by that, Derek? I think he is kind of crypto buying in this, like the, I don't know. There, there are moments where I'm always sure. Can I, can I, can I say what yeah. I don't think, what I don't think he's, at least to take him at his word and to try to read him consistently, like he consistently says otherwise to the idea that the workers that benefit the most from, you know, the expo exploitation or capitalism or imperialism will necessarily be more reactionary or more conservative. He explicitly argues against that as against the third worldist variant or Maoist variant of labor aristocracy theory, where all the proles in the first world are actually somehow, they're exploiters because of this value distributionist thing. It is literally a conspiracy theory where the state classes have made some kind of arrangement with the business class to buy off. It's There's that, but even if you frame it in a structuralist way, it capitulates the extractive idea of exploitation and who is an exploiter into something that really coincides with and dovetails with a sort of neoclassical distributionalist look at exploitation. And it's simply about if you end up receiving more than you know the, the standard wage it makes you an exploiter even if you're not the extractor and that's like a dangerous road and that's i think anwar shaikh in his big old book on capitalism does a good job of saying that this kind of move 
in the analysis of imperialism really does sacrifice important aspects of the heart of Marxist economics and capitulates them to, to bourgeois economics. And that's not to say that these value transfers between the first and third world or what have you are not important, but I've met third worldist parties who actually, who actually reject the labor theory of value so that they could maintain some of that stuff. Yeah. But to get back right. on this, so why would why why still can't it be that an imperialist country do this on its own? Like because there is the theory that was often held by the Second International itself that it actually had to happen in the imperialist centers first. Um, well, the, maybe the imperialist centers. You know what I mean? Like uh, we're he, dealing with a single country here. He is saying and, a single imperialist country. So he's like saying the case that if England like it won't happen in the United um, States or England. Yeah. Well, like the United States is a bit different, I think, because it's so far to get to militarily and it's got a load of nukes, you know, but say back in the day, if it happened in like France on its own, that, you know, the Germans would come in and kick the crap and so would the British and the Spanish. I think that's his general point. It has to happen yeah, yeah. all of these at the same time. Yeah, they would not, be not necessarily. It doesn't have to actually happen in all of them at the same time but it has to be such an amount of socialists in the other countries that it can't happen you know the, you know or it will affect it they, they would be wary of it if france went socialist coming in the morning and germany wanted to invade but they had like 40 percent of their workforce were also commies they would find it very difficult to actually do that it would probably lead to a revolution at home you know what i mean right. so i think that's kind of what he's getting to yeah I, that's what i kind of and that's what I was hoping he was getting to. I mean, it makes sense too if you think about the like if you think about the bourgeois revolutions actually kind of had to work that way. You had to break up these, you know, you know, imperial and by imperial here, I mean literally like old school empires with with emperors. Like you had to break up the imperial blocks. I mean, you couldn't do it only in one country. If like it had to, it had to spread elsewhere. If you try to do it only in one country, like England, you had the Great Restoration. Like that's mm. that's the that's the bourgeois example of the same problem, so that makes sense because because I I actually know just also from reading like Metnair's articles on the week uh, the Weekly Worker that he he'd never be a third worldist but he's not even one of those people who had a lot of stock in like the um, developing world leading the way for the imperial world either he didn't he didn't see a whole lot of hope in that either he must mean that it just has to happen in a bunch of countries at once. <laughs> Oh, yeah, or close to, or be, or be so strong in other countries as to completely stop an invasion. Right. I just think this this idea of like the managerial class has been in the hawk with the capitalist class. I think it's kind of overstated because, like, if you think about the managerial class, are they do they make way more money than the petty bourgeois? Depends on the Pacific type of petty bourgeois. Right. I mean, petty like petty bourgeois income ranges in the United States, like from barely above poverty line to probably $400,000 a year. So I would also say the managerials also range from barely above poverty, well, not barely above poverty, but like $30,000 a year, all the way up to $40,000 a year, probably. You know what I mean? Right. So like this, this idea that the, all, the, all the managerial class are in love with capitalism, I think is, I, I just don't buy it. I think it's the same idea that Marx or Engels said that, you know, you can get a portion of the petty bourgeois onto the radical side, you know, and I do think that the same with the managerial. Look, I was part of managerial class. I fucking hate it. I knew loads of managers working in there. They hate all that crap. Actually, some of the most radical people I know are like former bankers. <laughs> so. As well, the, the people who are managers, they like get to a certain stage. You know, they know what it takes to go up and above and higher or how they have to do to get there. And they might hate themselves for doing it or they might never be able to get higher because they wouldn't do the crap. You know what I mean? So I just, I, I don't think it's that important a tendency. I just thought I'd say that. What do people think then? Is there anything, what we've covered today, is there anything sticking out before we before we sign off? <laughs> kind of tangentially related like to our conversations about enacting a minimum program and breaking up, you know, the military one thing that puzzles me is like if we're okay, we're breaking up the military as like a way of smashing the bourgeois state machinery. What does it mean for like I don't know, like a navy? That's one thing I've never quite been able to figure out. You can you can replace like you know the army in the traditional sense of like you know grunts with like you know a people's militia. Great. 
you can't really replace a navy with a people's navy. You know what I mean? Like, what does everybody get a boat? You know, I don't. I'd be kind of silly, but yeah, it's th- that's a broader question of Republican, Democratic, Republican institutional forums. If you talk to liberals about these sorts of things, the complexity of the modern world just creates the the conditions that make specialists and professionals necessary. Mm-hmm. And it is hard to see sometimes when that wouldn't be the case in these bigger questions. And that's really the whole nature of the problem that we're chewing on. How would you have something as big and legitimate and internationally significant that would still have this character? You could imagine that, say, when it comes to, like, Navy, let's say the British Navy has got, like, I don't know, 50 boats or whatever. You could decide to distribute them geographically and let each city or zone where they reside have control over each one. I think there yeah. are schemes for how you could do it. But the general idea is that you break up the this idea of the armed forces as a as a coup machine. That's the general mm. gist. To destroy yeah. the coup machine. Yeah, I actually do kind of think you could you, you can't have a people's navy, but you can't have a people's admiral. Although this kind of stuff is where Young where man. I started flirting with Bordigism and, and organic centralism, and just like we'll just we'll just figure out who's the most competent and put them in charge. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's really authoritarian. And that's also <laughs> how you get coups. Yeah, that that's the kind of hand waving that McNair is like, no 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 no, let's uh, <laughs> let's really look at that. And not that he's doing all of the democratic uh, theory that one would have to read to take these questions ther- seriously, but God, is he ever setting up this question in particular to get us re-engaged with the idea yeah. of democratic institutional norms. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.